0: I'm gonna go ahead and get right into it uh, because, in this series, as always, there is much to say, and I never say it quite quickly enough. So, if you haven't been here uh, before, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. Uh, We love to talk about considering together, and in this summer sermon series, uh, which we're calling The Universe Next Door, uh, we are considering together. Uh, alternative worldviews to the worldview of Christianity. And the reason that we're doing that, and a worldview is just a way of seeing life. It does not have to be uh, organized formally into a creed or put into a nice, succinct philosophy. It can be conscious or subconscious, but it's basically the way that you see and believe and act in the world. It all comes together. So everyone has a worldview. And a worldview can either be consistent or inconsistent, uh, coherent or incoherent. Uh, It can match up with reality or not. So everyone has one, and it's called the universe next door because you might be living in the neighborhood, and to your left and to your right, your neighbors could see the world completely different from you. And so what's the benefit of actually knowing and being exposed to and having familiarity with other worldviews? We think that it will help you actually have better conversations. And we talk a lot here at Sedaris about having great conversations. We believe that God is a conversational God, so we too should be conversational people created in his image. We should be able to be the ones that start great conversations, stick in great conversations, and to help mitigate that fear, of course, it helps to have a familiarity with the way other people see the world. And so, here we go. It's my sincere hope that uh, we avoid simple caricatures or general sweeping comments about other worldviews, but that being said, in a limited time, uh, there is some sort of conglomeration that happens, and so I hope uh, that I'm fair and honest, and my goal is not to disparage other worldviews or ways of seeing the world, uh, but actually it's to understand it so that we can be better listeners, we can stick in these conversations, and then we can be better uh, about rightly articulating the gospel of Jesus Christ, the uniqueness of it, and the hope that's found in it. So that's my hope. So we'll explain the worldview, we'll see why it's so attractive to so many, and we'll ask fair questions that need to be asked of every worldview, including our own, and then we'll put it side by side to the gospel and try to see where do these rub up against each other and not agree. Seems like a fair task, let's pray and ask God to be with us as we do that. Father God, we thank you for this chance to come and to consider your truth, the truth of the gospel, the truth of your son Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, tonight that we would be fair and honest both with ourselves and with uh, the ways of seeing the world that are foreign to us or perhaps are quite near to home. So we pray that you would be in this place, that you would fill us with wisdom uh, and that we could go from this place and have great conversations. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we discussed naturalism and nihilism. Naturalism being the idea of the universe as cold and silent, which is to say the material world is all that there is. It came about by chance. There's no God. What we see is what we get. And then its natural child, nihilism. And nihilism will say that if the material world is all that there is... Then, and we live in this accidental world, by time, by chance, by cause and effect, then really nothing has meaning at all. Nothing has real value, therefore hope itself is an illusion. And this worldview known as nihilism leads to despair. And we talked about at the very end this nihilistic playwright named Samuel Beckett who wrote a play called Breathe. And the extent of the play There's no human actors. It's a 35-second play, and it's just a stage and a pile of rubbish on the stage, and there's a dim light, and the light shines on the pile of rubbish, and it gets a little bit brighter, and there's a breath in, and then a breath out, and the light dims again, and it ends with a cry. That's the nihilistic view of the world. Life is but a breath Meaningless, chaotic. And we juxtapose that with breath in light of the word of God. And right at the beginning of God's word in Genesis, it talks about creation, and God had created a good creation, and then he created man and woman as his final sort of masterpiece. And it says that he breathed life into the man And the man became a living being. And we said, how different is that, that the the living, true creator God, who himself is full of meaning and life and purpose, would breathe into man, and so therefore we are filled with meaning, purpose, direction, because we have the very breath of God. And so today we are going to look at another kind of breath, a breath that is best described in a short essay written by one of the prophets of this worldview, the worldview known as existentialism, and we'll explain what that means. But one of the prophets, his name was Albert Camus, C-A-M-U-S, if you're taking notes. Albert Camus. He talks about a kind of breath in a short essay that he wrote, and it kind of gets to the heart of existentialism, and the essay is called The Myth of Sisyphus. If you've heard of Sisyphus, he was a, the hero of a Greek tragedy written by Homer. He uh, pisses off the gods and he's condemned. And what he's condemned to is ceasingly rolling a large boulder up a hill. And then the roll boulder falls back down to the bottom of the hill. And he has to keep pushing up the boulder. It rolls back down again And again, Albert Camus has a very unique interpretation of this Greek myth in which he finds meaning. So the task of rolling a boulder ceaselessly for eternity up a hill and it rolling back down is, we can agree, right, a futile, meaningless task. But Camus says this of Sisyphus, and I quote, His scorn for the gods, his hatred of death, and his passion for life won him that unspeakable penalty in which the whole being is exerted towards accomplishing nothing. But he says the whole being is exerted towards accomplishing nothing, and in a way that is the heart of existentialism. Because of this, Camus talks about in his essay... There is a moment, think of it, Sisyphus pushing the boulder up the hill, exerting great energy and force, and the boulder rolling back down the hill. He hikes back down the hill and he gets to the bottom of the hill. And there's a moment, we've all experienced that moment, where he pauses and he takes a breath, catching his breath. And he has, in that moment, a moment of consciousness where he has to decide do I push again? And it's in his catching of his breath that his consciousness rushes in. And he realizes what? That he has a choice, that he exists, that he actually is an agent of action. And so, for Camus, that Sisyphus, again and again, knowing that the task is futile, that there's no hope or meaning in his task, every time he catches his breath at the bottom, before he pushes again, he chooses To act and push and not give up. And so, for Camus, that pause, that catching of the breath, that full awareness of the futility and then the action is why, for him, Sisyphus is a hero. Precisely because he is lucid and he understands the full absurdity of the task, the absurdity of his torture, but it's in his conscious decision to act that he is a rebel a rebel against that absurdity. Basically, for Camus, Sisyphus would not be a hero if he was unaware of the futility of the task, the absurdity of the task. If he was unaware. And so, for Camus, this would be the naturalist. The naturalist thinker is unaware of the absurdity, and he is not, therefore, a hero. He would not be a hero if he was aware of the absurdity and then gave up. For Camus, that would be the nihilist perspective. Nihilism often leads to despair and, uh, in many cases, taking of one's own life. Similarly, Sisyphus would not be a hero if he was aware of the absurdity, but it was his hope that there was a real end to his suffering and torture that propelled him to keep going. You see what I'm saying? Camus says this, where would his torture be if at every step, pushing the boulder up the hill, the hope of succeeding upheld him? This is actually Camus' critique of religion. He's saying the religious man is no hero because he hopes that his actions will lead to some other end. That's not a true hero for the existentialists. For the existentialist, the real hero is the one who embraces, fully aware of the absurdity, realizes that there's no hope, but nevertheless does not give up. Camus says this, Sisyphus is superior to his fate. He is stronger than the rock. So in that breath of consciousness, in that authentic action that follows, that's where meaning is found. Rescued from despair the despair of nihilism. So am I, or are you, an existentialist? This is very close to home. I've been saying that again and again, but all of these build on each other, and I think even, even more so, this is very close to home. This is a way of seeing the world and living in the world that uh, as we talk about it, you might actually not realize that it's different than what you think that you think. Because we do not know that we are assuming these sorts of things because we've never thought about it any other way this is built into our society and the rise of deism and the naturalism and the nihilism what the existentialists were trying to do and I think what we in our society tried to do we realize that we've given meaning away by how we define and describe the world but you know what We want it back. We've given it away. We want it back. And that's really the existentialist goal. That's his passion is to get back what was lost and what was lost is meaning. And the way that they do that, we'll see, is by taking a passionate leap to meaning. So you might be an existentialist if the blinking red hand at the crosswalk excites you. You might be an existentialist if you truly Love being surprised at surprise birthday parties. Not like you want to know that it's going to be a surprise and then you like pretending, but you actually want to be surprised at surprise parties. You might be an existentialist if you would rather try a new restaurant, even if that restaurant ended up being not as good as other old favorites that you have. You might be an existentialist if you love romantic comedies, even if you don't want to admit it. And you might be an existentialist if when you miss a big sporting event, you DVR it, and then you punch anybody in the face who tells you the outcome of the game before you've watched it. I could raise my hand to each of those. I might be an existentialist. So this, I think, is why this particular worldview interests me as it does. So let's see how, hopefully at the end, you'll understand why those seemingly unrelated phenomenon are all related to existentialism so what is existentialism well actually it has historical roots in christianity there was a guy by the name of soren Kierkegaard, and Kierkegaard was trying to find a way out of the cold dead orthodoxy that he found in danish lutheranism and so he came up with a way out of it what i mean by cold dead is that people were going to church saying the right things believing the right things but they weren't doing anything There was no action, there was no life, and he wanted to bring life back into his faith. And so he came up uh, with this way of seeing faith, and he came up with the great term, the leap of faith, which you've probably heard, you might even say it yourself, trying to bring back meaning to his own Christianity. And we won't talk uh, as much about Christian existentialism But as Christians, if you're a Christian in the room and you might be an existentialist, therefore you'd come into that camp and we can even talk about this if you want to get together and have coffee more about what that looks like to be a Christian existentialist. We'll focus more on atheistic existentialism, which is that non-Christians heard and read what Kierkegaard was saying and they appropriated his understanding of the world into their own ideas because they too were trying to get meaning back into their worldview that had been lost. And so famous existentialists are guys like Kafka, Sartre, Camus, and they were in despair because they realized the implications of naturalism and nihilism, and those things left them without meaning, but they longed for meaning. They needed it. They wanted it. They said this, or their heart said this, life is worth living, but nihilism tells me it's not. But life is worth living. They just knew it deep in their core. And so they set out to transcend nihilism. And so they say things like this. This is Jean-Paul Sartre. He says this. Every existing thing is born without reason, prolongs itself out of weakness, and dies by chance. That's the nihilistic view. But then he says this. I leaned back, closed my eyes, The images, forewarned, immediately leaped up, filled my closed eyes with existences. Existence is a fullness which man can never abandon. I knew it was the world, the naked world, suddenly revealing itself. And I choked with rage at this gross, absurd being. So, for Sard and existentialists, existence itself, realizing that we exist is a fullness. And they'll say things like this, existence precedes essence. And I'll explain that le- later. Existence precedes essence. So while essence may be meaningless, the objective world, they find meaning in existence itself. Albert Camus says, says something similar. He says, A world divested of illusions and lights, man feels an alien, a stranger, This divorce of a man and his life, the actor and his setting, is properly the feeling of absurdity. So what do you do in the face of absurdity? Existentialists would say you admit it, that life is absurd, that there's no real meaning, but when staring the beast called absurdity in the face, you have three options. And we talked about those. You choose hope, you choose suicide, or you choose meaning. And of course, for the existentialist, choosing meaning, defying the meaningless by choosing meaning is the way out. That's the hero's answer. This is the middle way chosen by the existentialist. For existentialists, particularly Camus, he wants to try to find a way to be a saint without a god. A saint without a god. The uh, atheistic existentialist's task and to be honest, these motives were not bad. In history, as these ideas began to filter through, the motives weren't bad. For Kierkegaard, the motive was saving Christianity from what he appeared to be sort of a downward spiral towards meaningless Christianity. I can't say that's a bad motive. For Sard and Camus and the like, they were trying to rescue meaning from the nihilistic, naturalistic world. And so they're trying to bring meaning back because we all sense that we want it and to be honest I'd rather live in a world full of existentialists than a world full of nihilists or a world full of Christian existentialists than a world full of right believing but not acting Christians so what we've been doing with each worldview is looking at eight questions those are written in your bulletin as well now we won't go through all of them here with existentialism because Most of them, particularly one, four, five, six, and seven, they agree with naturalism. That is that they say prime reality is matter, the universe alone, that's all that exists, there is no God. They say that death is the extinction of personality and individuality. They say that we can know things only through our innate autonomous human reason, including the methods of science. We can know the universe, the cosmos, including the world and the world is to be seen in its normal state, meaning nothing is broken, broken, this is as good as it gets. No such thing as special revelation. We don't need that to know. We only need ourselves. They would say that we know right and wrong because ethics is related only to the human being. There's personal and chosen. We looked at that last week. Determined by the human being based on situation and reason. And then they would agree with naturalism that human history is linear that events are linked by cause and effect without an overarching purpose. So they would agree with naturalism on all those fronts. And if you weren't here last week and you want to hear about it, that sermon is online. But how does existentialism differ from naturalism and nihilism? So they would answer question two, what is the nature of external reality? This is the real biggie. They would answer that differently by saying this, they would say the cosmos, which is the material world, are, compo- are composed solely of matter. But to human beings, reality appears in two forms, subjective and objective. Now, stick with me, I've got a great illustration to help us see this. But they would say the world as it is, is the objective world, and it just is. It is what it is. But then at some point, and we don't know why or how or who knows why this happened, a new being emerged on the scene. And this being could distinguish the it from the he and the she. Of course, this is the human being. And a human being, unlike every other thing that exists, was determined to set their own destiny, to ask questions, to ponder and wonder and seek meaning, and to endow this external world with value, meaning, to create gods, for instance. And so now there's two kinds of beings in the universe. The first kind is living in the objective material world, the laws of cause and effect, chronology, the clockwork universe, the great machine. They're a part of that. But there's a second, new kind of being, and they live in the subjective world. They have minds, consciousness, awareness, freedom, stability. So science and logic, they run the objective world, but thinkers, subjective thinkers, they run the subjective world, and science and logic don't penetrate that world. The thinker, the knower, is king of the subjective world. And so while naturalism highlighted the unity of everything, existentialism wants to emphasize the disunity of these two kinds of worlds, the objective, which is still there, but the subjective. And they opt, of course, strongly in favor of the subjective world. And that's where meaning is created. What are human beings? They're very, very special. There's nobody else like them in the universe They are the only ones that are self-conscious and self-determined. And here's the kicker. When viewed from within the objective world, there is no meaning. But that's okay because meaning isn't found in the objective world. It's found in the subjective world. So what do we get back that we lost? Meaning. This is the great plan of the existentialist. And in many ways, they, they do a good job of explaining that. And it seems to make sense. And as Christians, we would respond, we would agree that, yeah, reality is beyond matter. We would agree that human beings are unique in creation. We would agree that meaning and value are not dead. But we cannot and and should not affirm the disunity between the objective and the subjective worlds. So Francis Schaeffer, who is a great pastor, theologian, apologist, defender of the faith, talked a lot about how what's happened and how these ideas seeped into Uh, christianity is that we create these two stories of a house think of a house and what we do is on the on the main floor of the house this is where the objective world lives right these are the ideas of facts and science this is where logic and cause and effect sort of rule things but then there's a second floor to the house which we'll call the subjective floor and this is where the the ideas of religion and morality and ethics and meaning and value that's where they reside And this is a very existentialist idea and it's crept its way into Christianity. And so we tend to do the same thing. We tend to put those things up in the upper floor and, you know, is it an attic or is it someplace we actually live? That's up to the individual. But we've separated them. And the unique thing about existentialism is this, there are no stairs that go from the first floor to the second floor. You say, well, how do you get to the second floor? Think of a hole in the ceiling, and you have to, with a great, passionate leap of all your energy, make it from the first floor up into the second floor. That's how you get there. There's no logical step to get up there. And so you think of, remember I talked about uh, Soren Kierkegaard, he talked about the leap of faith. Well, existentialists would say the same thing. To get back meaning, we have to leap from the first floor into the second floor through a great act of the will. And by doing that, we authenticate ourselves as living, existing human beings. And it's a heroic act to leap through this hole in the ceiling to get to the second floor. And so the question is, is that how the world is ordered? Existentialists would answer question three. What is a human being different as well? They'd say that they're complex machines. They have personality and interrelation of chemical and physical properties that we don't fully understand how that works. But then they would say this. They would add this on top of what naturalism would say. They'd say, but human beings alone, uh, for human beings alone, existence precedes essence. Remember I mentioned that before? Which is to say people make themselves who they are. So Sartre says this, this is also on your yellow sheet. If God does not exist, there is at least one being in whom existence precedes essence, a being who exists before he can be defined by any concept, and this being is man. He says this, first of all, man exists, turns up, appears on the scene, and only after defines himself. Salt is salt, trees are tree, ants are ant, only the human being is not a human before they make themselves so. So, what does this mean? Each of us makes ourselves. So, what is so essential in existentialism? Action, because we make ourselves through action. And it's one of the great benefits of existentialism because they tend to accomplish much because to authenticate yourself requires action. I've got to do something. I've got to do something in the world. So here's a great illustration of how this works. Say that there's a, sh- a soldier named John. John fears that he's a coward, okay? He fears that he's a coward. Now the question is is he a coward? Just because he fears that he is. Only if what? He acts like a coward. So his action will proceed from his nature. Sorry, excuse me. His, ac- uh, his action will not proceed from his nature, but his nature will proceed from his action. So when the bullets start to fly, we only can call John a coward if he does cowardly deeds and runs. However, if he chooses not to be a coward, then he actually is not a coward. So if John fears that he might be a coward, all he has to do is not be a coward and he can escape his fear. Does that make sense? Because action precedes nature. Existence precedes essence. We make ourselves into who we want to be. Sounds good, doesn't it? I get to decide who I am. Fear cannot hold me back because I get to decide who I am. And this plays itself out. The fruits of this are alive and active in our society and in our churches. We pursue experiences, we pursue uniqueness. Why? Experience reminds us that we're alive, so we love the experience because it reminds us that we're alive, because we feel alive. You ever said that? I feel alive. In the Christian community, this is, we see this because we kind of jump from one Christian event, concert, conference, camps, to the other. This is where we sort of get our energy and life from. This pursuit of uniqueness We tend to value the unique, the different, and in some senses the absurd more than the normal and the ordinary. In the Christian community we see this because we tend to lift up dramatic conversion stories rather than the stories of folks who have been faithfully walking with God for a very long time. That's just one example. These are just some of the examples of how this plays into because we love the action of a thing because it sort of authenticates our experience or our our living, who we are. They say, well, I've never read Camus. I've never read Sartre. Yes, but here's the way ideas work. Some really smart guy writes some book and then some other really smart people who maybe are artists or whatever, they put it into their work. And then it filters its way down, and we hear it in music, and we see it in movies, and we read about it in things that aren't technically philosophy, but they seep their way in. And before we know it, we're living a worldview that we've never even heard of. In the church, outside the church, it doesn't matter. So what is a human being? Existentialists would continue by saying, each person is totally free with regard to his nature and his destiny, He's uncoerced. Each person is king of his subjective world. We create our own value by affirming worth. And then they'd say this for questions 2, 3, and 4. In this tightly organized objective world, that stands over and against human beings and appears absurd. So this is a huge concept within it. We have to admit that the world is absurd before we can act authentically in it. So Camus says this. We must not forget our bent towards non existence, but live out the tension between love of life and the certainty of death. So we look absurdity in the face that, yeah, we know we're all going to die. We know that there's no point, but we choose to create it ourselves through an act of the will. Think about that. And how can we know anything at all? Because we get to create the value for ourselves. We create our own value by affirming worth. We create our own morality. We create our own purpose. The good, whatever a person chooses, that's the good. As long as it's chosen authentically and passionately, that's key, authentically and passionately, then it's good, whatever it is. And the good in the subjective world for the existentialist does not have to relate or is not measured by a standard in the objective world. So there's no sort of measuring stick. It's just if it's passionate and it's authentic, then it's good. The only evil, the only evil in this worldview is passivity or lack of passion. Here's the problem with this. I think it's a fair critique. Francis Schaeffer again use, uses this illustration. If that's how we decide what is good and and right, imagine a woman on the side of the road and she's stranded, her car is broken down. Now you as the driver coming up, you see this happening, you can tell that she's in distress. And you can authentically, through an act of the will, choose to pull over and help her. And you'd say that's good because you have chosen to act. The only thing that would be not good would be not to act at all, to just drive by. But what's left open is this option. You can authentically choose to act by swerving your car and hitting the woman. Who gets to say one is more good than the other if there's no objective measuring stick? Both are, if we're honest... Passionately chosen actions, it's a fair critique and it's kind of scary. So, is this worldview livable when there's so many centers of value? There's as many centers of value as there are persons. Christians would answer it a little bit differently. They'd say, Well, we don't create value, we discover it, we live into it. God is the creator of value. Everything He's created is inherently valuable because He is their creator and He Himself is valuable. So good is not determined by subjective man, but the objective character of God. It's discovered by the subjective man, either well or not so well, but it's not created. This is a huge difference. And so the final question that we always ask is, what personal life-orienting core commitments are consistent with this worldview? Existentialists would say the core commitments of every full-blown atheistic existentialist is this, himself or herself. We are accountable only to ourselves. We get to decide what our core commitments are. So those are the eight questions. And it's not hard to see, I think, why existentialism is so attractive. Sin is not breaking some rule. Sin is being inauthentic or passive. Well, I like the sound of that. I think it's very attractive because the world does seem absurd at times, right? And death does not make a lot of sense. So calling it absurd absurd, and then living as though death weren't coming is very appealing. I think it's also attractive because what we're fighting against is the impersonal absurdity of the world. That's our primary foe for the existentialists. I'm fighting against the absurdity of the world rather than personal human beings. I think that's Sounds like a noble fight. Moreover, that fight tends to be incredibly fruitful because we find meaning in a meaningless world. And not just that, existentialists themselves tend to be very, very productive because they're seeking more than anything to be passionate actors in the world. So we see it and we say, well, all those existentialists are getting a lot done. Lots of times more than Christians. I can see why that's attractive. And then finally, who wouldn't want to be the creator of value, the creator of morality, the creator of purpose? That sounds quite divine, doesn't it? And there it is. There's the rub. The most attractive piece of existentialism is also the biggest rub if you trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because what does existentialism promise us? The chance to be like God. Remember what Sartre said. If God does not exist, there is at least one being in whom existence precedes essence. A being who exists before he can be defined by any concept. And this being is man. Oh, yeah. That sounds good. Problem is, he wasn't the first one to say it. Again, you go back to the very beginning of this book. You may remember, if you've been around these kind of places enough, a similar statement. Since the beginning, the onset of humanity in God's world, this has been humans' go-to move. This is their drop step. Rather than trust in the wisdom of a gracious and good and loving Father God, we choose to displace God, tear him from his throne, put ourselves up there, and act sovereign over our own little worlds. That's always been our bent. It continues to be. And Genesis 3 captures it perfectly. It says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, For God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, from the beginning, the enemies of God have been saying the same thing. Now, remember, saying something doesn't make it true. They've been saying all you need to do is displace God, forget about God. Do it your own way. Go your own way. Don't worry, it won't lead to death. It'll lead to something more like life. But in doing it, you get to be like God. There's nothing more attractive to men than being like God. Why? Because we are created in his image. Why, as a son, do I want more than anything when I'm growing up to be able to beat my dad in one-on-one basketball? Because I want to be like him. I'm a created in his image. I want to surpass him. Why do we make movies about machines trying, or sorry, machines that we create trying to overthrow us and rule us? Because we know in our heart that we tend to want to overtake that which created us. So of course, why wouldn't machines want to take over our world? We try to take over God's world. You see that? It's, we know it. We know that it's true. We know that this is the way it works. We want to be like God. So this temptation, the one that was right there in the garden and continues to be the temptation of, of mankind again and again and again, that's the temptation, I think, that's offered by existentialism, that we get to be like God. God by creating value, creating meaning, creating our own purpose. And ultimately, this affects another very important question. Who is hero? It seems to me that this is an overarching distinctive of existentialism and probably of our own hearts, if we're honest. We tend to identify man himself as the hero of the story. Remember Camus' unique interpretation of Sisyphus? Man, even the punished man, is the hero of the story. Relegated to an eternity of futile work, he remains the hero because he chooses to act in the face of the absurd. He doesn't give up, he authenticates himself. And so the same goes for any functional existentialist. Any man or woman who lives authentically and honestly in the face of the absurd world through passionate action can create subjective meaning and thus they get to be the hero of their own story. Who's the hero? Camus talked about a saint without God. He wants to be the hero of his own philosophy. He wants to be a saint, but he doesn't want God. And how do you do that? I call it holy stubbornness. We are just going to be the most stubborn people alive, and we get to be our own saviors. But here's the problem. It seems to me. What if meaning was never actually lost in the first place? What if we just said it was lost so that we could be the ones to find it? Have you ever seen the show uh, The Last Man on Earth? (laughs) Has anybody seen that show? If you haven't, look it up on Hulu. I think it's hilarious. There's one man left on Earth until he discovers a couple of uh, women are also alive to which he gets very, very excited, as you might imagine, and so he's trying to woo them unsuccessfully. And just when he thinks that he's going to get his chance sort of to repopulate the world, we'll say it that way, another man shows up on the scene. And it turns out that these women (laughs) prefer him. Uh, Tatandi is the character's name. Tatandi. And uh, it's this... It's this cosmic battle between these two guys as they're trying to woo these two women. And then what happens is there's a cow. They haven't had milk for years because, of course, the world uh, had come to an end. So there's no refrigerator, so there's no milk, and the cows seem to be all gone as well. But they find this cow. And uh, what happens is it wasn't Tandy who found the cow. It was the other guy who found the cow. And so, of course, the women are very impressed with this guy who found the cow. So what Tandy decides to do is I'll pretend that the cow ran away. I'll take the cow, hide the cow, so that the next day I can go find the cow, come back, and guess what? I'm the hero. It's a great plan. Of course, it goes terribly wrong for him. He doesn't become the hero. But I feel like we do this a lot. We steal meaning away And then we bring it back, and at first we appear to be the hero. But the question is, was the thing ever gone in the first place? Was meaning ever lost? I don't think that it was. I think meaning's always been around. And the gospel tells us a very different story. A gospel tells us of a world created by God, soaked with meaning, volitionally created by God to have value, And yes, the human being has special value purpose assigned to him by their creator. But then humanity sold the farm. They exchanged the glory of relationship with God for the glory of being their own creator. But the story doesn't end. Because God is full of love and mercy and he granted them grace. He refused to allow the absurdity of the choice to be their own gods, define their future. And so God makes a decision to intervene. And he sends himself into the world through the virgin birth and he lives God the Son, the life we couldn't live as Jesus of Nazareth, full of the Spirit of God. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. He has come to rescue humanity and all of creation. He defies the course of human history and turns it around. He defies expectations in governments and religious groups. He makes the ultimate choice to act through the passion of the Christ. He went to die a real historic death. And here's the kicker and this is why the centrality of the resurrection and he literally, physically rose from the dead. Why is that so important? That he literally and physically rose from the dead. Because the atheistic existentialist says this, there is no true hope because there is nothing on the other side of death. The resurrection of Jesus Christ crushes that claim. There is life on the other side of death. For the Christian existentialist, we didn't get a chance to talk about it, but what they say is we can't be sure that Jesus actually rose from the dead. What does Paul say about that? This is written in your bulletin. This is my favorite chapter of the Bible, 1 Corinthians 15. I've preached on it before if you've been around. It says this, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we have testified about God that he has raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is the great existentialist term, futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in, the li- in this life only, we, of all people, are most to be pitied. But, if the resurrection is true, then there is real hope for life after the absurdity of death. We can know for certain that Christ has raised to new life. And so while we live in this age devoid of true heroes, We try to create them through our cinema and our reality TV and the dramatics of our media. We search for these heroes to create, to fill this void. We purposefully lose things so that we can find them, so that we can make ourselves the heroes of our own story, of the human story. But we're not the heroes of our own story because there's no such thing as the human story. There's one story unfolding in time and space, and it's the story of the one and only true God. That's the only story. And we get invited into that story, but it's not ours. The Creator of all things created all meaning, a meaning that was never lost, but was ever present in the character of God, poured out on all creation. And yes, meaning was broken because of sin and the fall, and it continues to be broken. But it was not shattered beyond repair. God sent to restore to its fullest potential a hero. And this hero had a personal name, and his name was not Camus or Sartre or Kierkegaard. It was not the name of your favorite politician. It was not the name of your favorite pastor or the pope. It wasn't your name, and it certainly wasn't my name. The name of the hero is the name above all names. His name is Jesus. He's God the Son. He put on objective material flesh. He lived in our objective world as we should have lived. He lived the way of righteousness, the life that we were meant to live, not in futility, but in full submission to God the Father, full of the Father's plan and purpose, the way that we have lost and he died a real ultimate death, paying the full penalty for our rebellion against our Creator. And because of his death, we have a chance to have new life. Not just because of his death, but because of his resurrection as he rose from the grave to a new living promise a promise that our life is not futile, it's not meaningless, it's not absurd. But it's chocked full of objective, real, true meaning and hope for anyone who places their trust in the one hero of the one story. His name is Jesus. So every week we come to this table and we remember that Jesus is the hero of our story. What an unusual hero. A hero who came and died. And so... We reenact this every week to remember his story and what he's done for us so that we can participate in his story. Because on the night before he was betrayed, he took bread just like this and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. He told us, eat this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. My blood shed for the forgiveness of sin." He said, as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And he will come again. He will come again. And so I don't know where every one of you is at in the room. If you feel like life is absurd, futile, and you find your meaning by creating it yourself, I just ask you to pray about entering into God's story It's so much easier to enter into his story, what he's doing, rather than create your own narrative. If you've been walking with Jesus for a long time and you need to remember that you don't create the meaning yourself, take a few minutes. But if you're trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin, if you're trusting in his death and his resurrection to bring you new life, new life in his story, not your own story, if you've died to your story, if you've died to your own heroism, Come alive to Jesus Christ as you come to the table. He is your hero. Come and have fellowship with him. So pray with me and then come have fellowship with Jesus. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that we are not having to be the creators of value, the creators of purpose, the creators of meaning in our own story. We thank you that you invite us into your story and that you've done everything possible to open that door, to open that opportunity for us to come in and participate with you in the greatest story and the only story that has ever existed. That that is our true existence, our existence is to be a part of your story. Jesus, you are our true hero, our true savior. We cannot save ourselves. We make terrible gods We repent of all those times where we tried to be God and displace you from your throne. We bow our knee and we humbly ask you, take back that throne in our life. Take back your right place in our world. Take back the city of Seattle. Give it back to you, God. We give you everything because you've given us yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.